Now, we're starting a new sermon series today, and it's called The All-Important Eye, and uh, perhaps a bit unlike most of our sermon series here at HDC, rather than going consecutively through a bit of the Bible, uh, whatever book of the Bible is, this next three-week series is a little bit sort of more uh, thematic in terms of its series, and you'll see what I mean by The All-Important Eye as we go along. But let me read Colossians 3 and verses 1 to 4. Paul writes this. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, it says there that our lives, if we're trusting in you, are now hidden with you in God. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, we might know more of uh, the wonder of what it is to be in you, that we might know more the wonder of who you are, and we pray that you would be at work in each one of us by the power of your Spirit now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, on the 6th of January, 2021, a mob of well over 2,000 people, mostly supporters of Donald Trump, stormed the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., furious over the recent election result. Five people died, 138 police officers were injured. And a week later, on the 13th of January, just a week before his term as president came to a conclusion, the president of the United States, you'll remember, was impeached for incitement of insurrection, though Trump was later acquitted in a Senate trial. That, that day, whilst the impeachment was being worked out in Washington, D.C., I was uh, working at my desk, and around midday, I received an email, uh, sorry, a WhatsApp message from somebody in the States, and this is what their WhatsApp message said. It said, well, America is watching today an attempt to hold the president accountable. My emotions swing from sadness to anger upon seeing the desecration of the Capitol. It's a broken time here. One of the questions I have is whether or how Wilberforce remains a model for the American church to lead us out of this mess. And that little short WhatsApp message really prompted this little sermon series that we're starting today, and it also prompted the book that I've been beginning to write in my sabbatical that I had back in January and February. And that WhatsApp message, it was from a, um, an incredible dynamo of a man called Eric Loxmo. Now, Eric's had a varied career. He used to be a speechwriter in the George W. Bush administration, uh, but in more recent years, Eric's focus has been media, more specifically film. And in 2007, he was the project manager uh, for the Hollywood film Amazing Grace, which you may well remember, which told the story of our very own William Wilberforce and his campaign to abolish the slave trade, which took place 200 years before uh, the film in 1807. Now, most of you here will know something about William Wilberforce, but just so we're sort of all on common ground, let me just give the most super speedy uh, CV of William Wilberforce. He was born in Hull uh, to a wealthy family in, in uh, 1759. He went to Cambridge, where he was good friends with William Pitt, who went on to be a, a, the Prime Minister. He was elected Member of Parliament for Hull at the age of 21. He came to faith in Jesus, what he termed his great change at the age of 26. 
Uh, he married Barbara uh, when he was 37. Uh, he lived for much of his adult life here in Clapham, and he worshipped here at HTC. He was part of a group of friends known in history as the Clapham sect or the Clapham circle. They were passionate for their Christian faith to be a real faith that worked itself out practically in all sorts of ways, most famous for working over many years for the abolition of the slave trade and slavery itself. And he died aged 73, and he was buried in Westminster Abbey. And it's with our common Wilberforce connection and admiration that Eric and I cross paths, and it's been such a blessing to cross paths with him. Now, revisit Eric's WhatsApp message to me again, particularly the last sentence, and look at what he said. He said, one of the questions I have is whether or how Wilberforce remains a model for the American church to lead us out of this mess. And as I read it, that last sentence that I've highlighted, it sort of smacked me in the proverbial chops. I was startled by it, yet I immediately had one sort of negative reaction to what he wrote. I thought, broaden your reach, Eric. Broaden your reach. Because Wilberforce, Wilberforce is a model, not just for the American church, he's a model for us all. And the mess, that is far broader too. Broaden your reach. So let's start uh, very briefly with the mess. The mess. Think of our, our Navigate theme that we had at our church weekend last weekend that uh, many of us were on as we try and navigate our way through life, through the many storms of life. You know, the problem for us and the problem in our culture is that so often, what does our culture do? Our culture uh, discards any sort of external map for the journey. So an external map might be God. Or an external map might be the Bible. So often, what does our culture do? It discards any external map. And, and our culture, often us as well, we, we, we seek to make up our own internal maps that we alone determine and decide. So we look, to, when we're wanting guidance to navigate our way through life, what do we do? We look not up to heaven, but we look into our hearts to guide us. The mess of this culture stems from our radical focus on ourselves. We focus on the all-important I, me. You know, what do we take our uh, photos of? As we go around, uh, you know, wherever we are, we carry our phones with us. Uh, you know, the scenery changes wherever we go, yet so often, what do we take photos of? Not the scenery that changes wherever we go, but we take photos of ourselves who don't change wherever we go. We take selfies. We focus on ourselves, the all-important I. See, the root of the mess in our culture, the mess in our church, let's be honest, the mess in ourselves as well, is so often the focus on the all-important I. It's all about me. Now, circle back to Eric's WhatsApp message to me again, this wondering whether William Wilberforce is a model to help lead us out of all the mess. As I read his, read his message, my immediate answer was yes, because, you know, what I have loved most about Wilberforce is I've got to know Wilberforce more and more over the last 10 years since being part of HTC, and I've read about him and stuff like that, particularly in the first two months of this year. What I've actually loved most about Wilberforce, what I've been most impressed with, was not his perseverance, was not his eloquence, was not his humor, was not his political wisdom was not even that he led the charge against slavery, as amazing as that is. But what I have loved most of all about Wilberforce, something else, and that is his integrity. 
But I want to quote the conclusion of uh, uh, William Hague's biography of William Wilberforce. And this is a passage uh, that I'm about to read that when I first read it caused tears to stream down my face in which every time I reread it brings a lump to my throat. Because after 500 pages describing Wilberforce's life in detail, this is how Lord Hague brings together all his research, all his thinking about the man that is Wilberforce. This is what he writes. He says, Wilberforce's pursuit of a broad and uplifting vision of society elevates him far above the general ranks of politicians. But the fact that he managed to live according to his own principles and constantly reflect his beliefs in his own character is his crowning glory. It is the combination of Wilberforce's achievements and his qualities that mark him out as a figure rare indeed. Judged all round, his achievements were greater than, mo than those of most of the occupants of the highest offices in the land. But the reason he is a lasting inspiration rather than a mere notable parliamentarian is that in a long and arduous public life, he showed unyielding reverence for truth loyalty, integrity, and principle as he understood it, setting an example that has stirred the hearts and elevated the minds of generations who followed. In the dark historical landscape of violence, treachery, and hate, the life of William Wilberforce stands out as a beacon of light which the passing of two centuries has scarcely dimmed. It's quite a summary, isn't it? And it's why the all-important I that I want us to focus on is not ourselves, but I for integrity. Now, how do, you how do you define integrity? How do you define integrity? Integrity literally means the state of being whole, the state of being undivided. You know, an integer is a whole number. A building is assessed for structural integrity after an earthquake to check that it is complete, that it's whole, that it's not at risk. And so with integrity in a person, it's about every area of our lives being integrated so there is a coherence about every part of our lives. Uh, here is a, um, a model of a house. Now, um, it's not going to win any architectural award, I admit, um, but I, I'm very proud of my little um, production here. But I hope you'll agree that there is integrity, there is coherence between all the parts of this house. But if I go like that, it is quite literally disintegrated, hasn't it? Quite literally, it no longer has integrity. It is disintegrated. But I can work with it, and I can begin to put it back together again and bring somehow some coherence, uh, if I can get the magnets not to work, um, I can bring, again, coherence to this little house as I put it back together. And again, it is reintegrated. It has an integrity again. Now, I love uh, John Stott, the pastor's definition of integrity. He says this. He says, integrity is the quality of integrated persons in whom there is no dichotomy between their public and their private lives, between what they profess and what they practice, between their words and their deeds. And in Wilberforce's life, what I think is we see four types of integrity in marked contrast to so many of us, certainly in marked contrast to the culture we live in. 
Let me just briefly tell you them. Firstly, an integrated life. You see, this is the integrity that John starts speaking of, personal integrity. In life, having a good integration between how we are in private, how we are in public, between what we profess and what we practice. But for many of us, certainly for me, I don't know about you, there's a gap. There's a gap between those things. We are so often hypocrites. What you see is not always what you get. I don't always walk the talk. Secondly, an integrated discipleship. As Christians, we are to grow as disciples. We're to become more like Jesus, aren't we? And that growth, it should be coherent. It should be integrated, equally growing in our thinking, in our feeling, in our doing. Yet the problem is, for many of us, our growth is lopsided. For some of us, maybe we just focus on our thinking. It's all about sort of the dry intellectualism, just growing our understanding of doctrine. It's just the thinking. Uh, the thinking grows, not the other ones. Others of us, it's, it's, it's all about the feelings. We're just seeking our next spiritual experience. It's all about the feeling. For others of us, it's about the action. We just do, do, do. You know, be a change maker, but it doesn't really matter what I believe. For so many of us, we focus on one of the three, not all three, and it leads to disintegrated, lopsided discipleship. Thirdly, an integrated mission. Uh, I always say, you've probably heard me say it, that our evangelism needs to have a social dimension to it, and our social action needs to have an evangelistic dimension to it. The two need to be integrated together. But so often what happens as individuals, so often what happens in so many churches, is we keep them separate. We just focus on and prioritize one and ignore the other when actually they both need to go together for an effective integrated mission. And then fourthly, an integrated vision. You know, too often today, rather than having an integrated vision, we just have a focus on the present, on the here and now, rather than the future. We're just so focused on the present, no thought for eternity. And actually, we have a disintegrated vision when we need to be thinking about the eternal future as well and how it impacts us and how we live in the here and now. Now, we can think about those four a bit more in the next two weeks. But today, all I want us to see is so often, we have a disintegrity in those four areas, whereas Wilberforce is a great model of integrity in his life, in his discipleship as a follower of Jesus, in his mission, and in his vision. And that is what makes him such a great model to lead us out of the mess. All of us. Not just the American church, but all of us. Now, if I finished there, if that was the end of the sermon, there'd be a big problem. Massive danger. To use the navigate sort of nautical theme, if I just finished there, the danger is we would all sink. If I just stopped there and I said, William Wilberforce, he is a wonderful model of integrity for us to follow, so everybody go and do likewise. Off you go. There would be a major problem because we'd fail. I'd certainly fail. We would all sink under the burden of what I just said, just go and do likewise. Now, Wilberforce, you see, in his life, one of the most frequent spiritual battles he had was over his desires, or, or as he called it, his affections. Uh, it's been a real privilege to read his prayer journals, you know, his prayer diaries that he kept as just day by day he prayed to God. And as you read through his prayer journals, again and again in his prayer journals, he refers to the Bible passage that I just read a few moments ago, Colossians 3. It says, set your hearts, in other translations, set your affections on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. 
You see, when talking about desires, when talking about affections, Wilberforce talks about all sorts, the desire, the affection for personal ambition or lust or success or laziness or popularity or marriage. Again and again, he refers to this battle between having earthly desires and heavenly desires. Let me give you three of many, many examples I could give you of the kind of thing I mean. First example is when he's age 32, and he writes this in his prayer journal. He says, I'm less delivered than I hoped from love of the world's applause and fear of unpopularity. Now, just take that in for a moment. How 20th century is that? Those desires that we have, love of the world's applause, fear of unpopularity. There are certain two desires I battle with. What does he say then? He says, may God enable me for Christ's sake to set my affections on things above and have my life hid with Christ in God. Or five years later, this is the year before he met Barbara, who would become his wife, uh, he, was, he, he was mildly infatuated with a certain Miss H. Uh, she was called Miss Hammond. And he writes this. He says, I could not sleep last night for thinking of Miss H. How many of us have felt like that before? Uh, how much more, alas, does this show me that I am interested about earthly than about heavenly things? My prayers are disturbed, etc. Guide me, O Lord, into the right and make me more interested about heavenly and less about earthly things. Or again, later in his life, age 55, seven years after the abolition of the slave trade, he writes this. He says, O Lord, strengthen my faith. Send a spirit of thy son into my heart that I may call thee father and set my affections upon things above. St. Augustine is probably most famous for teaching about our desires, about our affections, saying that we are, each one of us, we're fundamentally shaped, we're fundamentally uh, guided by what we love, what we desire most. Yet there's somebody else who also was famous for teaching about desires. A few centuries after St. Augustine, his name was John Venn. He was the rector here at HTC at the time of Wilberforce. And as then, as he preached here in this very building, and as he preached on this very passage, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, what did Venn say? He said this, the crime is not in loving earthly things, but in loving them better than spiritual blessings. Instead, what he does is he urges that our, our desires and our affections for whatever our idols are in life, they must be replaced by a greater desire and affection for Jesus. He, he says this, he says, the expulsive power of a new affection for Jesus will make victory over temptation easier for where the mind is much occupied about divine things, the tempter will meet with little encouragement. You see, for Wilberforce and for you and for me, the secret to our discipleship as a follower of Jesus is that for all the things that we desire more than Jesus, or all the things that we're tempted to desire more than Jesus, what we need is this expulsive power of a new, greater affection and desire for Jesus as we set our hearts on things above. The truth is that I is not just the first letter of the word integrity. It's also a Roman numeral, I, the number one. And if you or I, if we want to begin to model ourselves, model this church on Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, it doesn't begin by striving in all our energies to be people of integrity. No, it begins with the all-important one, Jesus Christ. 
setting our hearts, setting our minds on him who is above. Because by very definition, if you're a Christian trusting in Jesus, then you are in Christ. Verse 3, Colossians 3 verse 3 says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And the first step towards a life of integrity is not about improving your life or adding to your life or experiencing something new in your life. It's not about those things. It is about growing what you already have, a relationship with Jesus. Let me give you an example from Wilberforce. Take Wilberforce's earthly desire for worldly ambition that caused him, as he termed it, to be a hypocrite. And then see the solution that he has to this desire for worldly ambition that he wrote in his prayer journal on a Sunday, probably after coming to church like you guys have done. This is what he wrote. He said, I was for a little intoxicated and had risings of ambition. Blessed be God for this day of rest and religious occupation wherein earthly things assume their true size and comparative insignificance. Ambition is stunted and I hope my affections in some degree rise to things above. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that as God grows in size, as his desires and affections for God grows, so his desires for ambition shrinks. He says the expulsive power of this greater desire for Jesus, it puts ambition in its right place. That is the solution. Now, there are others, but let me suggest four aspects of Jesus that it is worth us ensuring that we understand how big and mighty Jesus is that we might set our hearts on Jesus in all his glory. And all four of these, they're taken from the first two chapters of, of, of Colossians that lead up to Paul writing this bit, setting our affections on things above. Here's the first thing that we need to recognize how big Jesus is. First, Christ is our redeemer. This is Colossians 1 verse 12. It says, The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is that big. He redeems us. He forgives us our sins. Christ is our redeemer. Second thing Christ is, Christ is our ruler. Just a few verses later, verse 16 of chapter 1. For in him, Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is ruler. He's created everything. He rules over everything. He rules over the world. He rules over your life. He rules over my life. Christ is ruler. He's pretty big. Third thing it tells us, that Christ is our resident. Verse 27 says of chapter one, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're trusting in Jesus, Christ is in you. He is resident in you right now by his spirit. He is that big that he lives in each and every one of us. And then fourth, Christ is our restorer. Chapter two, verse six. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Christ doesn't just bring us to faith in him and then leave us. He restores us throughout our life. He restores us. He builds us up. He strengthens us in all the ways that we need restoring. He is that big. Now, those four things, each one of them in themselves are wonderful. They show us how big and mighty Jesus is. But the staggering thing is that he's all four at the same time. I, I love this quote uh, that C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote in a letter. He says this about Jesus' greatness. He says, one shows one's greatness not by being at an extremity, but by being simultaneously at two extremities and filling all the space between. He says to the person he's writing to, you're on the right track now getting to the real man behind all the plaster dolls that have been substituted for him. This is the appearance in human form of the God who made the tiger and the lamb, the avalanche and the rose. He'll frighten and puzzle you, but the real Christ can be loved and admired as the doll can't. A few years ago, we ran a sermon series here at HDC called Throw Away Your Plastic Jesus. Throw away your plastic Jesus. Now, I didn't know of Lewis's quote at the time, but we were trying to make the same point. Too often, what do we do? We have a very much reduced, domesticated view of Jesus. We just, just view him as a, a plaster or plastic doll rather than the real thing. The real Jesus, he is so much greater. He is so much greater and bigger because at the same time as being a ruler, being a redeemer in all majesty, at the very same time, he is also resident and restorer in all intimacy in our lives, simultaneously at those two extremities. And you see, it is as we integrate those four aspects of who Jesus is that we see how big he really is. That Jesus, the all-important one, truly is massive. Now, as I close, I wonder if you can remember Isaiah in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah had a vision of how massive and great God is in Isaiah chapter 6. And you may remember as, 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 as Isaiah is having this vision of how big God is, what happens? Isaiah cries out and he says, woe to me, I am ruined. In the face of the bigness of God... Isaiah recognizes his desperate need. And you know, as our affections, as our desires are increasingly set on Jesus, that'll be our first response too. We're in awe at the greatness, the majesty of Jesus. We'll recognize our need. We'll recognize our complete lack of integrity. In fact, you know, when Isaiah, when he cries out, woe to me, I am ruined. Literally, that is translated, woe to me, I am disintegrated. That's what it means. Woe to me, I am disintegrated. And yet if you remember that time as Isaiah has that moment, seeing the vastness of God, at that very moment as he says, I'm ruined, I'm disintegrated, what does God do? At that very moment, God comes and he begins to do a reintegration process. God comes, uh, sends one of his angels to Isaiah and he touches him with a coal that he's taken from the altar and he says, he touches him on the lips and he says, by this coal, your sin is being dealt with. Your guilt is being taken away. And in a sense, that moment, obviously, it is pointing forwards 
to the altar of Jesus on the cross and that sacrifice that Jesus took so that we might know forgiveness of sins. But also, too, as the angel comes and touches Isaiah with the coal, it is also a reminder that our mighty, majestic Lord is the one who brings about an integration again in us, who is the one who reintegrates us when we are recognizing our own disintegration only too well. And so HTC... Brothers and sisters in Christ, as I close, please, to be a person of integrity, please don't just sort of try and copy Wilberforce in your own strength, because it'll end in disaster, sinking. Instead, first set your affections on Jesus. Jesus, the all-important one. And as your affection for Jesus grows, the real, mighty, majestic, huge Jesus, not any pathetic, domesticated, plastic version, so the expulsive power of your affections for Jesus will enable you and I more and more to grow as people of integrity. And my goodness, that is what the world needs right now in all its mess. Amen.